Chapter 5 of The Winning of Popular Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Kachuk. The Winning of Popular Government, a Chronicle of the Union of 1841, by Archibald McMeekin. Chapter 5 The Principle Established. The storm raised by the Rebellion Losses Bill did not soon sink to a calm. It did not end with rabbling the Viceroy, burning the House of Parliament, homicide, and mob rule in the streets of Montreal. In the British House of Commons, the whole matter was thoroughly discussed. Young Mr. Disraeli, the dandified Jewish novelist, held that there were no rebels in Upper Canada, while young Mr. Gladstone, the rising hope of those stern and unbending Tories, proved that there were virtual rebels who would be rewarded for their treason under the Canadian statute. In a letter to the Times, Hinks showed, in rebuttal, that rebels in Upper Canada had already received compensation by the act of a Tory government. Who says A must also say B. Between the arguments of Gladstone and Hinks, it is perfectly clear that the Rebellion Losses Bill was anything but a perfect measure. Its passage had one more important reaction the annexation movement of eighteen forty nine this episode in canadian history is usually slurred over by our writers it is considered to be a national disgrace a shameful confession of cowardice like an attempt at suicide in a man it did undoubtedly show want of faith in the future those who organized the movement did despair of the republic but it is possible to blame them too much annexation to the united states was in the air lord elgin writes that it was considered to be the remedy for every kind of canadian discontent he was haunted by the fear of it all through his tenure of office annexation had been preached by the radical journals for years in canada and it was confidently expected by politicians in the united states as late as eighteen sixty six a bill providing for the admission of the states of upper canada nova scotia etc to the union passed two readings in the house of representatives the Dominion elections of a quarter of a century later, 1891, gave the death-blow to the notion that annexation was Canada's manifest destiny. But the idea died hard. Action and reaction are equal and opposite. Embittered by defeat, the very party that had stood like a rock for British connection now moved definitely for separation. The circular issued by the Annexation Association of Montreal is a document too seldom studied but it repays study in tone it is the reverse of inflammatory it is markedly temperate and reasonable after a dispassionate review of the present situation it considers the possibilities that lie before the colony federal union independence or reciprocity with the united states all that goldwin smith was to say about canada's manifest destiny is said here his ideas and arguments are perfectly familiar to the annexationists of forty nine the appeal at the close contains this sentence fellow colonists we have thus laid before you our views and convictions on a momentous question involving a change which though contemplated by many of us with varied feelings and emotions we all believe to be inevitable one which it is our duty to provide for and lawfully to promote there were those who protested against annexation but they were denounced as known monopolists and protectionists one speaker said were it necessary i might multiply citation on citation to prove that england considers and has for years considered 
our present relations to her both burdensome and unprofitable another said it is admitted i may almost say on all hands that canada must eventually form a portion of the great american republic that it is a mere question of time there follows a list of some nine hundred names beginning with john torrance and ending with andrew stevenson there are french names as well as english some bearers of those names today are not proud of the fact that they are to be found in that list one tory refused to sign the manifesto his monument bears the inscription a british subject i was born a british subject i will die the manifesto was supported by various pamphleteers and journalists. Elgin records his fear of the cry for annexation spreading like wildfire through the province. But it did not spread like wildfire. The original impulse, which may have been partly petulance, seemed to spend itself. Not all English opinion was in favor of cutting the painter, and one of the most determined opponents of annexation was that very alert politician, the young queen equally determined was the governor-general of canada to render annexation by violence impossible and by any other means as improbable as may be is he wrote the polar star of my policy when he could he showed clearly enough what his policy was the manifesto of the annexationists contained not a few names of men holding office under the government magistrates queen's council militia officers and others elgin had a circular letter sent to these eminently respectable persons holding commissions at the pleasure of the crown asking pertinently if they had really signed the document in question some affirmed and some denied others again questioned the governor's right to make the inquiry he then removed from office all who did not disavow their signatures as well as those who admitted them his action had an excellent effect and showed that he was no weakling he was warmly supported by the colonial secretary earl grey hitherto he had been only a peer of scotland but now in token of the government's approval was made a peer of the united kingdom soon the commercial conditions which had no small part in the political discontent began to mend the services of hincks to his adopted country at this time were of the greatest value a financier as well as a journalist he was able to secure the capital needed for the great public works and to set the resources of canada before the british investor in a most convincing way the welland canal was completed the era of railway development began immigration increased and business began to lift its head in eighteen forty nine the last of the old navigation laws which forbade foreign ships to trade with canada were repealed they were an inheritance from the imperialism of cromwell but were now outworn although the maritime provinces did not benefit the port of montreal began to come to its own as the head of navigation in eighteen fifty nearly a hundred foreign vessels sought its wharves the next session of parliament was held in toronto according to the odd agreement by which that city was to alternate with quebec as the seat of government every four years the government with all its impedimenta was to migrate from the one to the other the liberal party was soon to find that a crushing victory at the polls and a puny opposition in the house were not unmixed blessings it began to fall apart by its own sheer weight a radical wing both english and french soon developed the clear grit party in upper canada was moving straight towards republicanism and so was papineau's party rouge with its organ l'avenir 
openly preaching annexation. Canadian eyes were still dazzled by the marvelously rapid growth of the United States. American democracy was manifestly triumphant, and Canada's shortest road to equal prosperity lay through direct imitation. Salvation was to be found in the universal application of the elective principle, from policeman to governor. This was before the unforeseen tendencies of democracy had startled Americans out of their attitude of self-complacent belief in it, and converted them first into thoroughgoing critics, and then into determined reformers of the system that they once thought flawless. The legislation of the session of 1849-50 has still measures of value. Canada, for the first time, assumed full control of her own postal system. The principle of separate schools for Roman Catholics was confirmed, a measure which reveals Canada in sharp contrast to the United States, where sectarian teaching is excluded from a state-aided school system. Not a single bill was reserved, which the Globe called a fact unprecedented in Canadian history. The colony was now entirely free to manage its own affairs, well or ill, to misgovern itself if it chose to do so. Lord Elgin had almost laid down his life for this idea. Henceforth, it was never to be called in question. Two outstanding grievances were finally removed by the great administration during this session. They were both land questions. One afflicted the English, and the other the French half of the province. For a whole decade, the grievance of the clergy reserves had slumbered. Now it came up for settlement. The clergy reserves were finally secularized. Hinks, the astute parliamentary hand, led the House in requesting the British Parliament to repeal the Act of 1840. This was the first step preliminary to devoting the unappropriated land to the maintenance of the school system. In voting on this measure, La Fontaine opposed, while Baldwin supported it. The divergence of opinion marked the weakening of the ministry. The other question which affected French Canada was the seigneurial tenure of the land. The system was an inheritance from the time of Richelieu. Unlike the English, who allowed their colonies to grow up haphazard, the French, from the first, organized and regulated theirs according to a definite scheme. Upon the banks of the St. Lawrence, they established the feudal system of holding land, the only system they knew. There were the seigneurs, or landlords, with their permanent tenants, or sensitaires. There were the ancient usages, sans errant, long et vent, Trois de banalité, the seigneur's court, and so on. Seigneuries were also established in Acadia, but they were bought out by the crown about 1730, after the cession of that province to Great Britain. In the opinion of such authorities as Soult and Monroe, the seigneurial system answered its purpose very well. At first the French would not have it touched. In the troubles of 37, the simple habitants thought they were fighting for the abolition of the seigneur's duties. By the middle of the nineteenth century, it had become almost as complete an anomaly as trial by combat, but the question of reform bristled with difficulties. Which were the rightful owners of the eight million arpents of land, the seigneurs or the sensitaires? To whom should all this land be given? Was there a third method, adjustment of rights with adequate compensation? The reformers were not agreed among themselves. Some were for abolition of the seigneurs' rights. Some were for voluntary arrangement with the aid of law. La Fontaine was averse from change, and Papineau, who was himself a seigneur, held by the ancient usages. The whole question was referred to a committee, 
but all attempts to deal with it during the sessions of 1850 and 1851 came to nothing. Not until 1854 was definite action taken. All feudal rights and duties, whether bearing on Saint-Satère or Seigneur, were abolished by law, and a double court was appointed to inquire into the claims of all parties, and to secure compensation in equity for the loss of the Seigneur's vested interests. It took five years of patient investigation, and over ten million dollars, to get rid of this anomaly, but at last it was accomplished to the benefit of the country. Says Borineau, the money was well spent in bringing about so thorough a revolution in so peaceable and conclusive a manner. Both these questions gave rise to differences of opinion in the cabinet. The clear grits, or radical wing, were in constant opposition, simply because the progress of reform was not rapid enough. William Lyon Mackenzie, once more in Parliament, rendered them effective aid. In June 1851, he brought in a motion to abolish the Court of Chancery, which had been reorganized by Baldwin only two years before, and seemed to be working fairly well. Although the motion was defeated, Baldwin realized that the leadership of the party was passing from him and his friends, and he resigned from office at the end of the month. One of the pleasing episodes in the history of Canadian parliaments was Sir Alan McNabb's sincere expression of regret on the retirement of his political opponent. There are few enough of such amenities. In October of the same year, La Fontaine also resigned, second of political life. A letter of his to Baldwin, as early as 1845, lifts the veil. I sincerely hope, he says, I will never be placed in a situation to be obliged to take office again. The more I see, the more I feel disgusted. It seems as if duplicity, deceit, want of sincerity, selfishness were virtues. It gives me a poor idea of human nature. This is not the utterance of a cynic, but of an honest man smarting from disillusion. His exit from public life was final. He was made Chief Justice for Lower Canada, and presided with distinction over the sessions of the seigneurial court. His political career thus closed while he was yet a young man, with years of valuable service before him. Baldwin attempted to re-enter political life. The resignation of the two leaders involved a new election, and Baldwin was defeated in his own pocket borough by Hartman, a clear grit. That was the end. He retired to his estate, Spadina, his health shattered by his close attention to the service of the state. He was an entirely honest politician, deservedly remembered for the integrity of his life and his share in upbuilding Canada. So the great administration reached its period. It was succeeded by a ministry in which Hinks and Moran were the leaders. The new parliament included a new force in politics, George Brown, creator of the Globe newspaper. A Scot by birth, a radical in politics, hard-headed, bitter of speech, a foe to compromise, with Caledonian fire and fondness for facts, he soon commanded a large following in the country, and became a dreaded critic in the House. He had disapproved of the late ministry for its failure to carry out the program approved by the Globe, especially the secularization of the clergy reserves. He became the Protestant champion, the denouncer of such acts as that of the Pope, in dividing England into Roman Catholic sees, and naming Cardinal Wiseman Archbishop of Westminster, and the pugnacious foe of French domination. His activities did not tend to draw French and English closer together. He lacked the gift of his successful rival, John A. MacDonald, 
for making friends and inspiring personal loyalty. The Hinks Moran government was a businessman's administration. It is noteworthy for its successful promotion of various railway, maritime, and commercial enterprises. It aided in the establishment of a line of steamers to Britain by offering a substantial subsidy for the carriage of mails, a policy which has continued, with the approval of the nation, to the present time. It was this ministry also which pushed the building of the Grand Trunk, and ultimately succeeded in creating a national highway from Riviere du Loup to Sarnia and Windsor. This was the era of reckless railway speculation. Municipalities were empowered to borrow money on debentures for railway building, guaranteed by the provincial government. Unfortunately, they borrowed extravagant sums and ran into debt, from which, at last, the province had to rescue them. But unlike what happened in the case of some of the American states, there was no repudiation of debts by Canadian municipalities. The year 1851 is likewise famous for the Great Exhibition. Britain had adopted free trade to her great advantage. All the nations of the world were expected to follow her example and remove the barriers to commerce to the benefit of all. The freedom of intercourse between nation and nation was to slay the jealousy and suspicion which lead to war. To inaugurate the new era of peace and unfettered trade, the Crystal Palace was reared in Hyde Park, the palace made of windies, as Thackeray calls it, and filled with the products of the world. The idea originated with the Prince Consort, and it was worthy of him. For the first time, the various nations could compare their resources and manufactures with one another. Canada had her share in it, as a demonstration of general British superiority in manufactures, the Great Exhibition was a great success, but as heralding an era of universal peace, it was a mournful failure. Three years later, England, France, and Sardinia were fighting Russia to prop the rotten empire of the Turk. Then came the Great Mutiny, then the four years of fratricidal strife between the northern and southern states, then the war of Prussia and Austria then the overthrow of France by Germany. All these events had their influence on Canada. The 100th Regiment was raised in Canada for the Crimea. Joseph Howe went to New York on a desperate recruiting mission. Nova Scotia ordained a public fast on the news of the massacre of white women and children by the sepoys. Thousands of Canadians enlisted in the northern armies. The Papal Zouaves went from Quebec to the aid of the Pope against Garibaldi. All these were symptoms that Canadians were beginning to outgrow their narrow provincialism and to perceive their relations to the outer world, and especially towards Britain. The country was reaching out towards the role which, in our own day, she has played in the Great War. Meanwhile, Lord Elgin was playing his part as constitutional governor, standing by his principle of accepting democracy even when democracy went wrong. Though inconspicuous, he was always planning for the benefit of the country he had in charge. He had visions of an imperial Zolverein, but he perceived clearly the immense and immediate advantages of freer trade relations between the British American colonies and the United States. Those once attained, he thought the danger of annexation passed. His activities in his last year of office prove that a man of ability may be a strictly constitutional governor and yet preserve a power of initiative of almost inestimable value. In 1853, Lord Elgin paid a visit to England, and while there obtained full powers to negotiate with the United States. 
for several years hinks had been doing his best to induce the american government to consider the question of reciprocity in natural products with canada but without avail bills to this effect had even been introduced into congress but they never got beyond the preliminary stages new england was inclined to favor the proposal for agriculture was declining there before the growth of manufactures the south favored reciprocity rather than annexation for the irrepressible conflict between the slave states and the free states was every day coming closer to observant eyes and including canada in the union meant a great accession of strength to the already populous north opposition came from the farmers of the northern states who feared the competition of a country as yet almost entirely devoted to agriculture general indifference the opposition of a section combined with the feeling that canada had nothing adequate to offer in return for access to the huge american market removed reciprocity from the domain of practical politics the scale was turned by the codfish question ever since the success of the revolution the fishermen of new england had a grievance against the british government and against the colonies which did not revolt they thought it most unjust that as successful rebels they could not enjoy the fishing privileges of the north atlantic which they had enjoyed as loyal subjects they wanted to eat their cake and have their penny too of course no power on earth could exclude them from the banks the great shoals in the open sea where fish feed by millions but territorial waters were another matter by the law of nations the power of a country extends over the waters which bound it for three miles the range of a cannon shot as the old phrase runs now it is precisely in the territorial waters of the british american provinces that the vast schools of mackerel and herring strike to these waters american fishermen had not a shadow of a right but yankee ingenuity was equal to the difficulty and proposed the question where does the three-mile limit extend the american jurists and diplomats insisted that it followed all the sinuosities of the shore if admitted this claim would give american fishermen the right of entrance to huge british bites and bays full of valuable fish the canadian contention was that the three-mile limit ran from headland to headland thus excluding the americans from fishing within the deeper indentations of the coastline by the treaty of eighteen eighteen the americans were definitely excluded from the territorial waters but still they poached on canada's preserves it was maddening to nova scotians to see aliens insolently hauling their nets within sight of shore and taking the bread from their mouths the americans applied the headland to headland rule to their own territorial waters no blue-nosed fisherman could venture into the chesapeake but for the britishers to insist on the same rule was another matter in eighteen fifty two the constant clash of interests almost led to war for britain backed up the just complaints of her colonies by detaching a force of six cruisers to protect our fisheries and stop the poachers and the american government also sent ships to protect their fishermen there was no further action beyond a recommendation in the president's message to congress that the whole matter should be settled by treaty such was the situation when lord elgin arrived at washington in may eighteen fifty four his suite included hinks and lawrence oliphant the writer whose humorous and satiric account of what he saw during the negotiations makes most amusing reading the diplomats reached the american capital at one of the most dramatic moments of american history on the very day of their arrival the kansas nebraska bill passed congress it meant the momentary triumph of the south 
and the extension of slavery into the great hinterland beyond the mississippi the passage of the bill was celebrated by the salute of a hundred guns and fearing trouble legislators sat in the house armed to the teeth lord elgin at once began operations which can hardly be distinguished from an ordinary lobby from marcy the secretary of state he ascertained that the kernel of opposition to reciprocity was the democratic majority in the senate and he set about cultivating the democratic senators there was a round of pleasant dinners and other entertainments at which lord elgin shone a british peer is always an object of interest in a democracy this one possessed most agreeable manners a charm to which southerners are peculiarly susceptible and also an unusual gift of oratory which won him favor with the public accustomed to the eloquence of daniel webster and wendell phillips these things told with the democratic majority that the treaty was floated through on champagne is an exaggeration but there was undoubtedly much hospitality shown on both sides and much good fellowship ten days after his arrival at washington lord elgin was able to tell mr marcy that the democrats would not oppose the treaty and on the fifth of june it was actually signed oliphant furnishes most amusing details of the actual ceremony of appending the signatures it went into force only after it had been formally ratified by the legislatures of great britain and the united states the most important provisions were as follows natural products were to be admitted free of duty to both countries the principal being grain flour lumber breadstuffs animals fresh smoked and salted meats lumber of all kinds poultry cotton wool hides metallic ores pitch tar ashes flax hemp rice and unmanufactured tobacco in return the american fishermen obtained the coveted privilege of fishing within the territorial waters of the maritime provinces without any restriction as to distance or headlands canadians were accorded the right to fish in the depleted american grounds north of the thirty-sixth parallel north latitude nova scotians were not pleased at these concessions especially as they were not allowed to share in the american coasting trade but as trade grew up and prices rose their discontent naturally vanished the benefits accruing to canada from the treaty were immediate and plain to every eye in the first year of its operation the value of commodities interchanged between the two countries rose from an annual average of fourteen million dollars to thirty-three millions an increase of more than one hundred per cent the volume of trade rose steadily at the rate of eight or nine millions per annum when the war broke out between the north and the south prices jumped and during the four years of the struggle canada had a greedy market for everything she could produce the benefit to both countries was obvious for the first time since the revolution the currents of north american trade flowed unchecked in their natural channels canada had never known such a period of prosperity and was never to know such another until the great west was opened up by the railways and until immigrants began to flock in by hundreds of thousands to draw from the rich loam of the prairies the bountiful harvests of man-sustaining wheat lord elgin's pact held good for twelve years in the last year the volume of trade was more than eighty-four millions the agreement ended from a variety of causes economic and political canada had raised the tariff on american manufactures in order to meet her increasing expenditure and she tried to divert american commerce from its regular routes to a profitable transit through canadian territory but the chief cause was the bitterness of the united states at the attitude of britain during the civil war the trent affair 
the ravages of the alabama and other commerce destroyers the open and avowed sympathy with the south expressed in british journals and elsewhere convinced the american people that britain would be glad to see the republic broken up that with such provocation the americans should deprive a british colony of a commercial advantage was not unnatural one statesman even proposed that the whole of canada should be handed over to the united states in compensation for the alabama claims that the treaty was negotiated at all and that the experiment in trade was so beneficial to both countries has certain important lessons the episode proves that a colonial governor while governing in strict accordance with the constitution can do for his government what no one else can do lord elgin's success has never been repeated delegation after delegation of canada's ablest politicians have pilgrimed from ottawa to washington seeking better trade relations with no result the second lesson is the tendency of trade to mock at political boundaries and to wed geography even now with high tariffs on both sides of the line canada spends fifty one dollars in the united states for every thirty-three she spends in england from his triumph at washington the governor-general returned to canada to undergo another experience of democratic manners the hinks moran government was nearing its end parliament had no sooner assembled in the ancient capital quebec than it was dissolved in the political tug-of-war known as the debate on the address the government was defeated instead of resigning the leaders recommended the governor-general to dissolve the house so that there might be a new election and that the mind of the people might be ascertained on the two great issues the clergy reserves and seigneurial tenure the opposition contended that the ministry should either resign or else bring in some piece of legislation as a trial of strength lord elgin's position was precisely the same as in the time of the rebellion losses bill he acted on the advice of his ministers when he came in state to prorogue the house a most extraordinary scene occurred he was kept waiting for an hour while the parties wrangled and when her majesty's faithful commons did present themselves the speaker john sandfield macdonald read first in english and then in french a reply to the address which was a calculated insult to her majesty's representative the point of the reply was that as no legislation had been passed there had been no session and that this failure to follow custom was owing to the command which your excellency has laid upon us to meet you this day for the purpose of prorogation sandfield macdonald was an ambitious and vindictive man he was wrong too in his interpretation of the constitution hinks had denied him a cabinet position which he coveted and this was his mode of retaliating upon him none the less the house was prorogued and the elections were held according to the old bad custom they were spread over several weeks instead of being held on a single day the result was unfavorable to the government representation had been increased and out of the total number of members returned the ministry had only thirty at its back the conservatives numbered twenty-two the clear grits seven independents six and rouges nineteen papineau was defeated and retired to his seigneury Hinks was returned for two constituencies. In the election of the Speaker, he very adroitly thwarted the ambition of Sandfield Macdonald to fill that post, but soon afterwards the ministry was defeated on a trifling question and resigned. Hinks was afterwards knighted and made governor of Barbados and Guiana. He returned to Canada in 1869 to be a member of Sir John Macdonald's cabinet. He made a fortune for himself 
and he had no small part in making Canada. He died of smallpox in Montreal in 1885. His Reminiscences is an authority of prime importance for the history of his times. That consistent, lifelong Tory, Sir Alan McNabb, became the head of the new ministry. The Attorney General for Upper Canada was John A. Macdonald. Six members of the old Reform Cabinet sat in the new ministry side by side with four Conservatives. This signified the formation of a new party in Canada, the Liberal Conservative, an exactly descriptive name because it composed the best elements of both parties. Under the leadership of John A. Macdonald, it held power for practically thirty years. That able politician, formed by education in this country, not outside, perceived instinctively the essential moderation of the Canadian temperament, and how alien to it was the extravagance of rouge and clear grit. The national temperament is cautious and bent to shun the falsehood of extremes. Under the dominance of the new-formed party, the jarring scattered provinces became one and grew to the stature of a nation. Lord Elgin's reign was over. In the autumn of 1854, he made a tour of the province and was everywhere received with unmistakable tokens of appreciation and goodwill. He was right in thinking, I have a strong hold on the people of this country. His administration represented the triumph of a statesman's principle over every consideration of convenience, popularity, and even safety. Thanks to his firmness and his chivalrous conception of his office, government by the popular will became established beyond shadow of change. To estimate the value of his services to the Commonwealth, one has only to imagine a Sir Francis Bondhead in his place during the crisis of the Rebellion Losses Bill. A weaker man would have plunged the country into anarchy, or have paltered and postponed indefinitely the true solution of a vital constitutional problem. No governor of Canada was ever worse treated by the Canadian people, and yet no proconsul is entitled to more grateful remembrance in Canada. In spite of that ill-treatment, he grew to like the country. His eloquent farewell speech at Quebec evinces genuine affection for the land and genuine regret at having to leave it forever. Like every traveller who has known both countries, he was struck by the contrast between the whole landscape bathed in a flood of that bright Canadian sun and our murky atmosphere on the other side of the Atlantic. The majestic beauty of the St. Lawrence and Citadel Crown Quebec had won his heart. Like a wise man and a Christian, he looked forward to the end, and he imagined that the memory of the sights and sounds he had grown to love would soothe his dying moments. He left Canada for service in India, like Dufferin and Lansdowne, and never returned. His grave is at Durhamshala, under the shadow of the Himalayas. It is marked by an elaborate monument surmounted by the universal symbol of the Christian faith. But a nobler and more lasting memorial is the stable government he gave to that true north. End of chapter 5